Speaking Logically is brought to you by ETF Logic, the leading provider of analytics and portfolio analysis tools for financial advisors. No information within this should be considered trading or investment advice. Welcome to Speaking Logically. This show is about the ETF ecosystem, where we interview ETF issuers, investors, and advisors. My guest today is Henry Jim, an ETF industry veteran with extensive experience creating, building, and delivering ETFs to the masses across the globe, the US, Canada, Europe, and Latin America. On the show, we discuss a wide variety of topics in the ETF industry, including the differences in ETF adoption across regions and the challenges of bringing a crypto ETF to the market in the US. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Henry Jim. All right, Henry, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Emil. So you've had quite an extensive experience in the ETF industry, I believe in the US and, and in Europe, so it's crossing the pond. Why don't you just start by giving us a little bit of background on yourself? Sure. I actually started with ETFs. It's been almost 20 years now. As a trader, I was arbing ETFs or index futures based in Chicago with a little hedge fund there. Back then, the only three instruments we really had at disposal were the spiders, the diamonds, and the Russell 2000s. Oh, and the cubes. Sorry, so it was four. <laughs> so those were the really early days. Yeah. yeah. And we had these three huge monitors, you know, those big hulking ones. I had six of them in front of me. They kept us warm during the winter. Back then, we had just gone from fractions to decimals. So the spreads were still pretty wide, plus there weren't that many people in the market back then. So we had a good couple of years arguing those two. Back in those days, we were trading on the Globex for the futures, but on Instant, Archipelago, and Island for the uh, ETFs. We didn't trade on American Stock Exchange or the the New York Stock Exchange because uh, there was too much lag and it was too expensive. After a couple of years, once the trade started getting a lot more crowded, I went back to school. I did my MBA in France. And when I came back, I joined Spiders in Boston to launch their ETFs. The first batch were the fixed income ETFs. And that was followed by the international equity ETFs and their international fixed income ETFs. And I may have mentioned this to you before, Mel, but since I was raised in Mexico, I was familiar with the region. I know Spanish. And it just so happened that ETFs were getting really accepted in the region because of the transparency, their cost of trade, et cetera. They were a prime instrument for pension funds to invest in in the region. The regulars liked them for the reasons I mentioned, and the pension funds liked them because it was an easy way for them to get exposure to asset classes and to geographies they would get a lot more to access back then. Anyway, so once that opportunity came up, I took a lot of the spider ETS down to the region. So back then, the countries were Chile, Peru, Colombia, and Mexico. And I did that for a couple of years. Then I had the opportunity to join iShares in San Francisco to launch iShares Canada. The portfolio managers and the product team were in San Francisco, where I was based. And I would be in touch with the distribution folks in Canada and see what kind of products they needed, come up with the strategy, and launched a whole bunch of iShares ETFs. It was also the time when there were a whole bunch of smaller ETF shops popping up in Canada. And one thing that iShares did was they bought a another ETF called Claymore. So that's part of the integration of that. It was a fairly interesting project because iShares were first and they were equity fixed income, all straight index tracking ETFs. But in Canada, we had 
share classes, we had synthetics, we had inverse. So it was an interesting product to get those on board onto the proprietary iShare systems. After iShares, I had an opportunity to join JP Morgan in London. I was mainly to help them launch their European ETF servicing business. And I was there for about a year. Little family things happened. And hey, now I'm in Switzerland. I've been here since a couple of years now. And what I've been doing since last year, I've taken this little ETF monitoring and intelligence system, which I developed over the years since when I started in ETFs, there were no intelligence sources. I developed something called ETF Hearsay, which stands for Henry's ETF Alert Research and Strategic Analysis System. And what it does is I monitor all the SEC filings in the US and in Canada. I have a bit of a European coverage as well. I pretty much plugged in all the time. So I see as soon as something gets published, it comes onto my radar. I dig into the filings, I analyze them, I summarize them, and I publish them on my website as well as Twitter, LinkedIn, I have a Facebook and soon an Instagram page. And so that's where I am. That's my history with ETFs and that's where what I've been doing now. Yeah, I just started ETF Hearsay last year. Uh, it's been getting a good following. seems like uh, people like what I've been doing and I've been having some really good interactions with folks on the social media platforms and get to meet interesting people like you. Yeah, I would love to. I've been lurking around ETF Hearsay on, on your website and on Twitter getting all your alerts. So uh, amazing work that you're doing there and attracting the ETF industry. I'd love to talk a little bit more about it later. So your history is just fascinating. You've definitely you know, seen the evolution of ETFs from the beginning. And I'm curious on your thoughts on, you know, you're saying that you brought, I guess you cross-listed a lot of spider products in, in South America. Just curious about kind of your thoughts on ETF evolution across the regions. ETFs were first, I guess the very first ETF was actually listed in, in Canada, and then the US followed suit. And there's obviously a lot of, when you think about the market and adoption and AUMs, I think the US is ahead of the curve. But I'm curious how you think of, of where we are in terms of like product evolution across regions. Sure. The way I've looked at the evolution of these products, investment products in general, is the way I like to teach them, whatever, when I was at iShares and Spiders. I start with all the way back to the days of the indices, for example, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and how that started out as a price index because we didn't have the computational power to actually track market um, capitalization in real time. And how Post-war, we had the you know the launch of the S and P 500. We had more people to capture these stock prices and movements and all. And how the index itself was a good barometer. And it wasn't until Vanguard came out with their first index mutual fund in the 70s. How it, it, it's just been evolving as people want to access, understand, and access the market. So. With the first index mutual funds, then came in the early 90s. It was actually the the American Stock Exchange, who actually filed for, with the SEC, filed for exemptive relief to launch the first ETF, but it was the Toronto Stock Exchange who actually launched the first one. So it was the Americans who filed first, but the Canadians launched first. And I think the Canadian product was called the TIPS, the Toronto Index Participation Units. And these are just the, the first ETF that was launched, a spider in the United States, wasn't so much as a product to 
help investors access the broader market, although that was one of its objectives. That was actually more of a trading product. Uh, the American Stock Exchange was looking to uh, increase their trading activity and on um, you know, securities listed in the American Stock Exchange. And that was one venue to, to have people buy up the securities on the American Stock Exchange, packing them up and deliver them into a fund. You know, that causes um, the trading volume there. But eventually, some folks at Morgan Stanley said, well, why stop there? Why just the US? And they launched the webs in 96, which were global ETFs, the invested you know, in securities around the world. Eventually, that those were actually, um, how did the story go? It was actually Wells Fargo. It was an asset management part of arm of Wells Fargo, who were an institutional money manager, and they were looking to get into the retail market. I think they hired the Boss Consulting Group to come up with a plan to do so. And they just at the time identified these web ETFs as the way to do so because uh, retail investors could buy them on the market. So they bought up the Morgan Stanley webs, renamed them iShares back when the internet was just starting and launched a few more alongside the webs that created iShares. So the original target was actually intermediaries, advisors. It wasn't enough, how to say, scope or budget to reach directly into the retail market. But with the launch of iShares, that just, I think that's when um, that was a big turning point in the evolution of investment funds in general, right? So you had equities, then you had international equities. Then in, in the early 2000s, you had the first fixed income ETFs launching. And as with many things that, as many things that evolve or with innovation, it's just a snowball from there, right? So after fixed income, then you had uh, commodities, you had any asset class you can think of, and any, anything that you put an index, they launched on it. How does it evolve? The first were the equities and international equities. Then you had fixed income, international fixed income. You had commodities. You had GLD launching in 2004. And that was, again, these are practical responses to practical problems, if you will. GLD, if you recall, was launched because I think in the late 90s, most central banks around the world were selling off their gold holdings. And the World Gold Council, which it's an association of gold producers around the world. They were looking for a market to mop up this excess gold on the market. So they came up with the GLD and they actually hired Spiders as a marketing agent to help them uh, get the product off the ground. I understand yeah. there's an interesting story as well around kind of the mechanism to create and redeem physical commodities. I think that maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe there wasn't any ETF like it that traded physical commodities before GLD. So certainly a pioneer in, in that space. Yep. I guess, uh, I guess we could talk about the evolution in that way then. That's true. GLD, the way it works is instead of having to deliver the gold bars from the AP into the fund, what happens is all the gold is actually held at one custodian. It's a GLD, I think it's at JP Morgan's vault in London. And what happens is it's a cash create and the AP puts in an order, delivers the cash, and the cash is then converted into ETF shares. And in the vault, the gold bullion that's located there is then renamed or put into the name of the fund on behalf of the AP. So that was fairly new and very innovative. And if you trace, well, we can eventually get to it, but if you look at a lot of these Bitcoin funds that have filed recently, they're using the same mechanism. But instead of gold bullion, they have Bitcoin. Ah, that's really interesting. I guess one way to, to frame the evolution of ETFs is the way I look at product, 
over the dozen or so years that I've been doing it is I look at ETH product development and that regard evolution. I see it as three main areas of innovation or evolution. One is the, the investment case. So as you see, first we have the asset class. So you got equities, you got fixed, you got commodities. Then you have the smart betas. Then you have the alternative weightings, equal weightings, et cetera. Second way of looking at the evolution of ETFs is through the uh, commerciability. It started out as more of a trading vehicle for traders and also as a vehicle for the exchanges to have more liquidity. It then evolved into for investment advisors, intermediaries, so financial advisors to help their clients build portfolios. And now we're seeing with the Robinhood crowd and more people getting into investments, it's, it's more of a retail crowd rather than alongside the hedge funds and the OPNAS and other mechanisms uh, of the market. And the third part of ETF products would be infrastructure or operations. So as ETFs evolved, every time there's a new asset class or there's a new market geography that opens up, APs have had to adapt for some of the markets. For example, the original PCFs, the portfolio composition files, the files are, as you know, I think you've been in this before, files get published nightly that indicate to the market how to trade these ETFs. They're really fairly straightforward. They were very standardized and there's no equity. But as fixed income came in, then you had to finally standardize that. iShares had to come up with a free basket creation redemption process for the fixed income funds for technical reasons. So I'll get into it right now. Then you had the commodities and gold creation redemption model. But then you also have development of systems of people automating these trades. So, for example, one trade, when I was a trader, I would arm ETFs versus index futures. But there were other people who would trade whole baskets of underlying securities versus the ETFs or versus the futures, right? And right now, um, as we opened up the international markets, we see a lot, a lot of innovation there on how to make baskets, how to do assisted trading, how to have more people, more market participants participate by, for example, assisting in trade. So cash creates. So harking back to the days of mutual funds where you would deliver cash and the fund would execute on your behalf. Things like that. So those are the three areas of innovation evolution I see in ETFs. The investment case, the commerciability or commercial venues, and third, the operational infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you lay them out like that, I think a lot of uh, about the sort of battle that's playing out in the crypto space seems like the European regulators, Canadian regulators have figured out how to or have gotten comfortable around, I guess, those three sort of pillars because we've seen crypto ETFs launch there and most recently in Canada. But we're still kind of in a holding pattern with the SEC in the US. So I don't know. What, what do you think is the holdup there? And do you anticipate that we'll ever see crypto ETFs in, in the US? Actually, I've talked about this before with other people. Um, I think... Cryptocurrencies as either an investment asset or a trading vehicle, I think it's fine, technically speaking. I think the issue here in the States is that if the U.S. government, whichever part, the SEC or the central bank, if they acknowledge in any sense Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, 
uh, that might have broader implications for the U.S. dollar right now. I think so. It might go a little beyond than than just safeguarding investors' money here in this case. Like for example, other countries like Canada or in Europe, approving a Bitcoin ETF, Bitcoin vehicles, um, it is fine because they just trade alongside and doesn't really affect the standing of the local currencies per se. But when you have something as monumental as the U.S. dollar and you have Bitcoin, which is not under the purview of the U.S. government, and they can't issue more of it or have many options to control it. Then I think that's the holdup right now in the U.S. I think in the end they will figure out something. I'm not sure what that would be. Maybe more regulation or some sort of fungibility with some sort of U.S. central bank digital currency. I'm not sure. Can't make a call there. But it's definitely definitely very interesting how this is going to work out. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting to watch, and especially you know sitting on the sidelines,、uh, seeing how it all plays out. I guess、uh, one question I have is kind of reg- maybe taking a step back from the regulatory concerns, like specifically around crypto. How do you view kind of the regulators in in Europe versus the U.S. versus other parts of where ETFs are, are popular? All right. So in Canada, it's an interesting case because there's no central securities regulator. Each province has its own regulator. I haven't seen anything outright, but sometimes I get the impression that the various provincial regulators compete with each other, as well as with the U.S. to get things approved and to to really be the first to market. In Canada, as you know, once one regulator approves it, it usually gets exported federally. And in Europe is similar, as you know, we have、uh, there's no central securities regulator. Each country has its own. Once the fund gets approved and it's under usage rules, then it automatically gets passported across Europe. I think that plays a big part in terms of how products get approved in those different regions. And then,、yeah. and finally, then you have different regions then competing with the U.S. as well, although less so to push out cutting edge products like cryptocurrencies. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about ETF hearsay. So the new website or relatively new website that you've launched. Love to learn more about it. I mean, we know in the U.S. we're somewhere north of twenty five hundred ETPs. I guess depending on how you count. I mean, there's like a relentless pace of products coming out every day. Curious, what have you observed over the last few months that you've been picking up on filings and, and tracking the industry? In just the, just the first six months, we're almost at the halfway mark. I think we're at almost double the amount of launches from last year. Earlier this year, I called for 2021. I called it's the year of the Bitcoin ETF because of all the focus and all the work and energy that going into Bitcoin ETFs. But the second, I think, big. Um, development is conversion of mutual funds to ETFs, and that could include the actual conversion of existing mutual funds into ETFs, but also existing mutual fund complexes getting into the ETF space. And with them, they're also either alongside or they're being pulled or they're pushing along a lot of other smaller,、uh, non-traditional money managers into the ETF space. So, I think、um, this has been an incredible year. I don't know if last year was because of COVID and more people stayed inside and had more time to think it through, but this year we're seeing just a lot more people entering into the ETF space. From if you take a look at from the three pillars that I mentioned before: investment, pace, the commercialability, and the and the、uh, 
operational aspects of ETF. We are not firing on all full on full cylinders on all three aspects. We have all these really innovative strategies coming in. For example, the outcome-based ETFs, the ones that have a floor on how much um, your investment in the S&P 500 can fall, you know, or if it's leveraged plus a floor. You have all these thematics now coming out, for example, in yeah. you know, living, et cetera, et cetera. The mutual fund ETF conversion is particular interest. I mean, I think we've seen a, a handful of funds from Dimensional, for example, a, a couple of weeks back, add to the AUM count, I think to the tune of uh, $30 billion. You know, AUM in the ETF space is already on track to to hit, I don't know, seven trillion maybe by the end of the year. I mean, that's my estimate, but it's just it's just moving at, at a fast clip. And I think the transition out of mutual funds into ETFs will just accelerate that even more, especially since we kind of broke the ice this year with that. So lots of interesting things to watch there. Yeah. And they're coming in, in in three ways. There was one, the actual conversion of mutual funds to ETFs. I think that could be a game changer because you're bringing, as you mentioned, immediate AUM into the ETF space. But secondly, they're also bringing along their entire performance history, which could have a lot of implications for new investors, especially on the institutional side who need like a minimum number of years before they can invest in funds. Not the size. The second way traditional mutual fund managers are entering the space is via launching a whole new ETF shop or through these white label shops like Alphark, Tidal, Russell, and most recently, even Tuttle Management, they're starting to help others get into the ETF space. And when I say others, I mean people like stock pundits who talk a lot about stocks all the time, or you have RIAs, or you have hedge fund managers. These are all people who find cost of entering ETFs really too large, or they don't have their expertise, or know-how. And so I think these white labels are playing a huge part in facilitating the entry of untraditional money managers into ETFs. Absolutely. With the continued expansion of the white labeling firms. And I also credit a lot of the, the growth to, you know, regulatory changes. For example, the ETF rule that I believe was passed at the end of 2019, I think it's just kind of evened out the playing field. That was a really made, six, 6011, right? Yeah, 6011. It's, uh, I guess, simplified the creation of the ETF wrapper for, for a lot of ideas that you want to wrap an ETF around. So That's true. Since uh, launching ETF hearsay, I've noticed that traditionally you could only launch an ETF if you had your own ETF trust. Now you see, I'm seeing a lot of ETFs being launched under umbrella mutual fund trusts as well. So they have the ETF products now lined up alongside their existing mutual funds. So it's definitely opened up the doors immensely to everybody out there who manages money in the US. Right. Yeah. We haven't really touched on on trading too much. Is there anything of interest that we should explore on that on that side? One thing that was new to me as I started hearsay and getting on Twitter was that it seems like the price per share seems to, it's an evolution of, I guess, the data points and ETFs and how people look at them. But as a 
as an institutional trader or as an asset manager, the, the only reason when coming up with the price to launch an ETF back when I was doing it was back in the early days for clearing purposes, sometimes you would get charged per share if you went up a certain amount of shares. So you get charged three cents per share up to a thousand shares. So you will want to launch a product at a higher price per share, minimize the number of shares for each trade. I think that's not relevant anymore. And what's be more important to folks who watch us now, especially the retail investors, are lower share prices so that they can seemingly buy more for their money per share basis. Back when it started, I mean, that's one trading issue I've seen. Back in the old days, you also had minimum lot sizes. So if the price was too high, you could only buy one share. So you couldn't really trade or you have to pay a lot more. Yeah. Well, we touched on a lot of different topics, regulatory frameworks and some of the items on ETF hearsay. Can you tell people how to get access to hearsay? Now, the website is, of course, uh, www.etfhearsay.com. And that's hearsay as an H-E-A-R-S-A-Y. I'm also very active on Twitter for the alerts. If you want to find out what's being filed and what's listed in the media future, you can find me at ETF Hearsay on Twitter, at ETF Hearsay. And right now I'm working on other venues to get the news out. Those are the two menus, Twitter and vlog, ETFHearsay.com. Very cool. Yeah, well, I've definitely been getting all the alerts and enjoying also some of the discussions off the back of that. Well, Henry, it was really good chatting and... I guess we could wrap it up here. Any any final thoughts? No, just thanks very much for having me on. I appreciate it.